Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Ward and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast where I can promise you that you will never hear any adverts and you'll always hear a Yorkshire accent. We chat with our guests about peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery, longevity, relationships and happiness because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first sprint triathlon, set a personal best at your next race or just keep turning up into your in the 70s. Each of these elements has real significance. One way to keep turning up is with regular movement practice and if you've got difficulty fitting it into your daily routine, I've tried to make it easy for you by putting together a series of stretching movements in a single page PDF document along with video links which you can download for free if you don't have a copy already. If you'd like to get hold of one, please look for the very obvious link in the show notes below. So, did you watch any of the Phoenix Sub 7, Sub 8 coverage recently? I think there's actually a documentary which has just aired on Amazon, so we'll put links to that in the show notes. Anyway, today's guest is Jacob Tipper, talented cyclist and performance coach who was instrumental in helping Joe Skipper's team formulate and execute a strategy for that project, which resulted in the fastest bike split of the day by some margin and got them within three minutes of victory against Christian Blumenfeld's team. With a Masters in Applied Sports Science, he thoroughly enjoys applying his knowledge to helping triathletes and cyclists go faster, and we get properly into some rabbit holes today, so I hope you enjoy that journey. So let's crack on with Jacob Tipper. Welcome to the show, Jacob Tipper. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah, thank you. you. You came highly recommended from Dan, Dan Bigham, who was a guest on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, I'm trying to catch him up on podcasts. I think he's done about 100 and I'm on about four, but yeah, I'm, get, I'm getting there. Okay, well, if we get some good stuff today, maybe you'll get asked back by the uh, by the listeners and then we'll we'll knock that up a bit more. Or maybe we could maybe we could do a mini series. So you, you sort of like do 10 little ones that will bump up your uh, scores a bit. Yeah, I need to, need to work pretty hard on it. The, the guy's done a lot of podcasts now, so uh, <laughs> got, got, my work, got my work out for me. So um, Dan was part of the same um, Hoob track cycling team that you were. Um, you and he have both been working for, doing some work for Hoob. You're both working on the Sub 7, Sub 8. I know you're not working together on these and you've been doing your own thing, and that's why we're chatting today. So um, let's give the listeners a sense of um, why you're on the show today. Um, how you got to be in the position where you've been asked to do all of those things. So tell us where you started. Were you, were you, a, were you always a cyclist? Were you a swimmer? Or did you come from some other background? Uh, as a kid, I did uh, triathlon. Um, just as my foot was my first endurance sport anyway. Um, and then that eventually became cycling at about the age kind of 17, eight, 18, uh, converted just to the bike. Um, and then, yeah, and then kind of just went from there gradually, very gradually kind of progressed my way up through the kind of UK categories and then some, some lower level international races, slightly higher level international races. Um, yeah, I've raced at a UCI continental level, which is the third tier of professional cycling as such. And then, yeah, and then in 20, I don't even know what year it was now, 2016, we, uh, we put together the track team, uh, Dan invited me to be part of, um, this team that we're going to have a bit of a go at the nationals and yeah. And then we, and then we set up who bought bike went from there and yeah. And that, that um, then we uh, yeah got to do some really cool, exciting stuff and yeah, really caught the eye of everyone with uh, our David versus Goliath story in the world of track cycling, how we were essentially a team of amateurs taking on 
the giants and the heavyweights of the world um the world track scene and yeah and then through all that i've studied um sports science uh through um postgraduate and undergraduate and postgraduate sorry and yeah and then I, and then i went straight into coaching through that to support all this as well because i would say being somewhat the amateur track team did not pay so uh, all the way through that i've got into coaching and then yeah the last few years I've really got the the opportunity to start working on a few more exciting projects through a kind of combination of my background in this in science, the background within high performance sport, and then people realizing that somewhere along the lines, we, uh, as a group of lads, we were doing something right with the track team, and uh, people have taken interest in that, and it's given us these cool opportunities with sub seven and Dan's hour record, and yeah, and gone from there. Cool, and uh, probably the last thing we'll talk about today is you sort of making. Uh, an attempt to revert back to triathlon now? Yeah, um, I decided that I was too busy to do just cycling, so it was better for <laughs> that I then yeah, do three sports instead that involve driving to pools and fight, yeah, fighting for uh, fighting slots on running tracks. And yeah, and then I could do a cyclocross race yesterday as well. So even doing multi-discipline, multi-disciplines of three different sports, yeah, I've already got the road relays and cross-countries penciled into my diary. So yeah, just... Oh yeah, I decided. Yeah, too busy for one sport, so I've just decided to branch out and do even more. So yeah. then, then I think a bit of a flawed logic there, but yeah, it's, it's, what, <laughs> it's, what, it's what I'm trying to do. It sounds like you've got the right mindset for triathlon because that's how people used to usually come to me as a coach. It's like I've got, I'm running this company. I've got four children. Um, I uh, I do this as a volunteer. Oh, and I've decided that seeing as I've got some spare time, I'm going to try and do an Ironman. Oh, and I want to go sub ten hours as well while I'm on it. It's like. Where's your spare time? Oh no, no, I'm filling all my spare time up now. So there's there's absolutely no wiggle room at all. Yeah, sounds familiar. All right, well let's let's go back then, right back to the beginning. So you started out in triathlon. Does that mean you were a swimmer then? Because most people who take up triathlon when they're young tend to have, at least from what I've experienced, tend to have running and swimming backgrounds, probably through participation in in school school teams. So was that you? No, uh, I started as triathlon. Uh, okay. Stroking. So I didn't, you know, I'd, I'd done swimming lessons, but I couldn't swim. Um, I'd not, you know, I'd, I didn't run, I didn't cycle. Um, I literally started it as triathlon uh, with the Black Canoe Triathlon um, squad, well, squad, just club. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, the swim was definitely the part that held me back as a kid. I was, by the end of my time as a youth, I was relatively competitive, like fourth in elite duathlon and things like that, which is not too shabby, but, yeah, the swim... I was I was a I was a I was a long way off elite level or the the realistic chance to step up to being an elite athlete. Mm. Um, there was there was clearly unfortunately there was clearly no pathway for me as a as a triathlete because you know long distance wasn't so much of a thing. I mean, not that this was that long ago, but ten years ago, fifteen years ago, there wasn't this pro scene for long distance stuff. It was it was elite or nothing, and mm. it was already a minute slower than everyone else over 400 meters so right. yeah that wasn't that gap wasn't getting any close any smaller so yeah there was there's realistically not a lot for me to go, go and progress with and go and do like you say whereas cycling i'd say has has this kind of more at the time especially it had more depth of its professionalism if that makes sense so you could be a lower level professional whereas in again yeah. triathlon you were either going to the olympics or you weren't within within yeah, yeah. and i definitely was not going <laughs> to the olympics who, who do you remember from uh, Black Country Tri? I know a few people from there. Paul Robertshaw has been quite instrumental in, in a few triathletes. I think Chrissy Wellington um, 
um, recognises Paul's contribution. Was he there when you joined Black Country? Um, was he actually? He may have been Brat. Actually, I, no, I, think, be... I think you're thinking Brat. Yes, she yes. Was, yeah, she was. Yeah, we were. I, I I don't really know if the clubs are still rivals, but I remember when we was a kid, it was like a yeah rivals that we'd have these um we'd go to these award nights and then Brat would win Club of the Year because they had Chrissy Wellington. And we were like, hang on a minute, we organised two aquathlons, two kids races, an Ironman, an Olympic, yeah. you, Chrissy Wellington, and you're apparently Club of the Year. I remember that being a being a bugbear around <laughs> 2003 or something. Well, Black <laughs> Country, like, yeah, <laughs> Black Country Try used to organise the longest day. I remember doing that one a couple of times. I, um, I was it, potentially out there marshalling as a as a kid. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did a commentary there one time. It finished on a field. Um, in the middle of nowhere, there was no, there was no shelter. There was nothing. We had a gazebo that got blown away, uh, uh, away by the wind. And we ended up sitting in the car with the engine running, with the windscreen wipers going, trying to see who was coming across the finish line. Yes. Yeah, so that, that would have been at one bin that would have been. So yeah, that's, um, I'd, I'd have been there. I think those two years I was the kid on the bike in front of the lead woman. Right. Those, those two years. So yeah, I, I was there trying, and then, trying to do my bit. I think the, uh, the two years I, I actually participated, um, the run was along an old railway line. I remember just in the middle of the railway line, you had to run up some embankments onto the top of what was maybe an old bridge and then down the other side and out to the other end and turn around and come back. And then you finished in... Um, Alders, Aldersley Stadium. Yeah, that's right. Aldersley Stadium, yeah. yeah. I, I know the... I know the. I got the Strava comp for the uh, railway section the other day on my, on my gravel bike. So yeah, I, right, I, yeah. I, ride, I, I ride that all the time. I really like that... Uh, railway that it's actually a really nice old bit of abandoned like infrastructure that's really nice for running yeah. actually well I, th- I seem to remember that one of the days it was pretty hot and sunny but running down there's um quite shaded isn't it so it's, it's nice and pleasant for uh f- f- for what will be the most painful part of your event yeah no it's good okay so you were now dan dan followed a bit of a similar path didn't he because he was doing triathlon when he was um before he took up cycling more seriously. So we, did you and Dan used to compete? No, so Dan, I think Dan started when he was at university. So by which point I'd stopped. So which one I was just a cyclist. Okay. And that was then Dan getting into multi-sport then. So like, we got in the same way in that we both got into triathlon and then went from triathlon to cycling. Uh, the difference was that I just started that whole path five years earlier. Or so, so, you know, I kind of started in the club scene, if that makes sense. So, you know, I, I'm kind of... I'm more aware of the kind of traditional cultures of tri clubs and cycling clubs, right. you know, whereas Dan didn't start till a bit later. So, you know, he's never, he's not been cafe stops where, you know, it's the old boys having beans on toast or whatever and things like that, you know, the kind of classic. Um, so I, yeah, I'd say like that, 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 that's, that's kind of the difference where he went straight in with the university level, which is a, mm-hmm. bit, a bit different. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, black, black country, tri- um, Steve Lumley's a friend of mine. He was in black country triathletes. Um, a couple of other friends of mine were in Brat, um, and they've been they've been around a long time. They're some of the old the old original triathlon clubs, aren't they? Those two. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, Steve Lumley's brother was my German teacher as well. <laughs> small, I didn't know Steve had a brother who taught German. The small little world it is. Um, yeah, but um, so yeah, we're, and I, I'm aware that we like as a, as a club. It's one. It's got kind of some of the most history within tri- the sport of triathlon but i mean it's a little bit like american history isn't it doesn't doesn't date back that far but uh yeah black, I know black country black country trial were there at the start and yeah like, I've, you know if i'm if i'm at can like conventions or whatever or um bike shows 
if I ever talk to people and mention Black Country Try, there's always people always know who they are and remember them and talk highly of the talk highly of the events because you know they were kind of also the last of the the last of the bigger events that were you know that were just voluntary club mm. run yeah. becoming yeah. the more corporate events. Not that there's anything wrong with the corporate events, but obviously no. it is nice when it is that whole club and that kind of environment. So we still have the sprint events, but the long what the longer ones are now gone, I'm afraid. Well, the the old boys of the sport like me reminisce fondly about uh, races like um, Longest Day and and its ilk. Now, um, so let's fa- fast forward a little bit then. So you talked about getting into cycling, moving up slowly, and then starting the track team. So we talked to Dan. Dan's got his book out. Have you got a book we can share? Yeah. What was that? Sorry. Have you have you written a book yet that that we're able to tell the listeners about? No, not 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 just yet. My writing uh, my writing ability is not quite there. <laughs> okay, so. Um, if you want to hear about the Dan's story and read about the track team, there's a lot of it out there. But you were part of that right from the beginning, Jacob. So just tell us your side of that whole uh, whole story from the day you started. Um, perhaps it didn't end quite as well for you as it did with some of the others. And I know I did ask you whether you were comfortable chatting about that. So uh, um, tell us as much as you want. Yeah, I'm trying to finish it off with the context a little bit. So um, it started off very much... Um, I, I, at this point now, I didn't really know Dan especially well. Um, I'd, I'd raced him in a few races and shown him, given him what for in a few races because it was when Dan was in his infancy a little bit and definitely wasn't most tactically astute. So I'd given Dan a good hide in a few smaller races. Um, he wanted he wanted to get he wanted to put this team together to a, a, attack nationals and give nationals a real good go. I'd. Like I, I wasn't overly keen, but I did see this as an opportunity. That I, I saw this as probably a very rare opportunity to actually go and get a national medal. I'd attempted with a few lads, including Harry Tanfield, a few years previously at the team pursuit, and you know we'd got fourth. We weren't particularly great, to be honest. Um, but, you know, Dan said, you know, we've got this good chance. You know, we can put a team together. And I, I thought, yeah, we'll go and get a. Oh, you know, I can go and get a silver or a bronze at nationals. That'd be nice. I've not actually got a national medal. Competing predominantly in road and and crits, it's probably unlikely that I was ever going to national the national road race champ, the medal the national road road race champ. So yeah, I saw yeah that that would be a nice opportunity to get a senior senior medal, and um, that was my expectation. And at the time, I was um, I was actually in China already at a different race, so I wasn't really planning on coming back and then smashing myself on the track. I was planning on coming back and chilling for a few months. So Dan said, "Don't worry about that." All you've got to do is roll off the line, give us a few hard laps at the start, and then you can go home, essentially. Um, that's all we need you for. We just need a fourth man that's got some track experience, got all the kit, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, I can do that. And then, you know, turn up to the first track session. Um, I literally just found out the night before that I was being best man for um, a mate's wedding. So a quiet drink in Birmingham had turned into a very heavy night's drink in Birmingham. So turned up late, very hungover to this track session, um, where a couple of the team members weren't very, which weren't, weren't very happy about. I was like, well, I don't know why you're getting upset. I'm only doing four, three laps. I can do that. Stop getting stressed about it. And then it turned out that I wasn't doing thing. They needed me to finish the full event with Dan and Charlie, who were, at the time then turned out to be very, very good pursuiters. Um, so I had a, I had my work cut out for me for the next six weeks, trying to keep up with those lads who were just again naturally a lot more gifted at. The individual pursuit than I was, I was more of a, a sprinter or on the track, I'd been more of a bunch race rider. Um, so pursuiting wasn't my forte at all. And like I say, I've been sh- sold this this message that I wasn't even have to finish it. And suddenly turned out that was Johnny's role. Um, he's ca- caught me out a bit. But yeah, we turned up to nationals as these underdogs and 
yeah, and, and we went and won it, which was a massive shock and surprise. It was, like I say, one of the hardest things I've ever done was keeping up with Dan and Charlie because um, they were... <laughs> They were absolutely flying, and they both basically broke. They were like they were setting basically national records, um, like national track champs records, competition. Uh, what do you call it when you say yeah, essentially the record at that competition um, in the individual pursuit? So they were like astonishingly fast, and I was suddenly having to keep up with them off limited training and preparation. So um, just 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 for those people who aren't perhaps cognizant of um, of track cycling events, um, the individual pursuit. How far is that? So sorry, the uh, individual pursuit is 4K and the team pursuit that we did is also 4K. Right. And as a sprinter, what sort of distances do you feel like you were better equipped to do? Well, I'm, I mean, like uh, I'm a road sprinter, which is, you know, it's it's a bit of a, a oxymoron. It's like being a tall dwarf. I'm really good. At, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the fastest of people that can get to 100 miles and then sprint. Right. OK. I, I'm not a sprinter like Chris Hoy. He'd like. Yep. We're, we're different athletes but then equally i'm a very different athlete to contador or like a client or chris Froome or a climber you know like yes. so it's 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 a weird it's a weird one like i say it's not more on you're the fastest person at the end of 100 miles right but yeah it, it's it, that aerobic energy that's needed in like a pursuit or whatever was not my forte which is uh which was for charlie and dan right and so essentially when you're in a team with two guys like that you're you're okay to get started you've probably got a bit more power than them to get started but then you've got to maintain almost like a not quite a maximal effort but for what is it just under four minutes or, or just around four minutes at the time it was like I say a, a competition record in the team pursuit that we set when we won it of 404 something Dan will know the exact numbers to the seventh decimal place but um yeah four 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 minutes and four seconds what we did at the time and yeah it's highly aerobic and the anaerobic contribution which is what i'm strong at isn't that much power in the grand scheme of things um so yeah i could get off the line not a problem but yeah holding on to those guys um i mean we were in a position at the end like once once this team went on its journey and was all dialed we, well, we were in a position when i was just on the absolute limit from the second we started to the end just using my anaerobic tank of energy up whereas dan and charlie and john could start and actually start recovering at the back. So John's heart rate would actually drop during a team pursuit. So we'd right. set up a spike, they'd actually start recovering, whereas mine just would go straight up to 180-odd beats a minute and then just gradually tap itself to 200 beats a minute. So that, that sort of physiology you have means probably that as a, as a more anaerobic athlete, you generate lactic acid more quickly and it goes higher if you were to measure it, but then it doesn't come down as quickly, whereas theirs never goes as high which means that they're able to keep that effort going for a bit longer without without blowing up. Is that right? Um, yes, there's one way of looking at it. It's the, the way that we the way that we define it is you have kind of two main energy sources, like your aerobic energy and your anaerobic tank. Mm-hmm. Of energy. Your aerobic energy is kind of what you sit on, and it, it, you've got that, in theory, like that's the power you can ride for somewhere between up to 40 minutes to an hour or even over an hour. Um, and then you've got this chunk of energy on top, on top of that now that chunk of energy you can either spread it out thinly for a long time or you can use it all in one go i've got a big tank but that only gets you so far kind of thing which is great for for like the when it came to road racing jumping across gaps or you know that ultimately sprints in road races are you know no more than 30 seconds long but you know it it you'd be surprised how it it still look it still gets spread very thinly when it comes to a four minute effort Mm -hmm. um 
So yeah, they've got the whereas they've got the aerobic side of things. So essentially, when they're on the back of the line, if they drop below that kind of critical power or threshold, which Dan could do, which was unheard of, anyone could be below threshold in, in this maximal four minute effort. Like, then he's essentially recovering and actually regenerating this anaerobic tank of energy that he's got to use. Um, so yeah, and same with John, they are literally rec- they are literally recovering on the back. Whereas for me, because I wasn't zero and I hadn't got the aerobic ability either. I'd go to the back of the line and still be at 400 watts. And that is 50 watts above my aerobic power. So, um, whereas they could be at the back at 320 watts, but they had aerobic power of three of 370, 380, 390. Mm. So what, yeah, they both have the advantage of being more aero and having more aerobic energy than myself, which uh, worked in their favor, but not in my favor. Mm. Interesting. The, 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 the sort of the precision with that specificity for, for different types of events and why even over something so short, there are certain people who are, who are definitely better at this type of event or that type of event. Yeah. I, th- I think like it's, pro- it's probably more clear in events that are even shorter than four minutes. So 1500 meters, 800 meters are probably more like in running or a lot more clear for that um, because there's that you have, and you have, and you can see that in the way that certain championship races are, ru- are, are run whether like guys are able to use that anaerobic or girls are able to use that anaerobic energy or if that gets spread out because the pace is so high throughout and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you'll have people where they can finish fast when the when events run negatively in the championship because they've got this anaerobic tank of energy. The, the issue is normally they've not got any of it left because they've used it all just trying to keep up when it's been like a fast set race with high paces, if that makes sense. That's how, that's the kind of, that's how we kind of physiologically model it. There's a few of the, nuance doing mm. to all of this but yeah so we'd fully model exactly what every rider could would be doing at every point in the line what their opening lap would be what the power they'd be doing lap two lap three lap four lap five based on whether they were sat first second third or fourth in the line and right. we would make our models based around that okay so you um went and did a master's and when we did our little pre-chat to this you were telling me that one of the reasons why you chose to go to was it worcester you went Yes, for my masters. You, yes. you you chose to go there, which probably wouldn't be top of a lot of people's um, best sports science universities. But the reason was that it gave you a better opportunity to apply practical science to science to practical situations, which obviously, from your just what you're explaining, is what you're really interested in. And that modelling of people's basic physiological characteristics, I guess, is is the perfect application of science to uh, the real world. Yeah, so like I think like when we spoke before, like I explained that I did my undergraduate at um, University of Central Lancashire. Then I finished that, just decided that actually it, it kind of took until the very, very end of final year for sports science to really click. And I felt like, you know, I'd almost missed a bit of an opportunity with 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 university and not kind of delving into everything as much as I should have yeah. done as a graduate. I was too busy partying and kind of enjoying myself. So I thought, you know, I, I kind of feel like it clicked towards the end of my undergraduate. So I thought, yeah, maths would be great. So I looked around the two local ones at Birmingham and Worcester. Birmingham, very like good establishment, but their courses, yeah, it was very theoretical. And for me, is a, that's just not how my brain worked. You know, like one of the modules was um, to do with like how kind of the name is, the name has gone for me now, but, um, like neural physiology kind of thing. So like deep brain, and I, but I was like, how do you apply that? You know, there's very limited studies on 
the effects of that from a high performance or like from an easily applicable point of view. I'm sure there are studies. I'm sure there are people that can apply this, but in a very niche specific way. Um, whereas yeah, again, Worcester was just a, like, it was an applied sports science course and the main modules were just like assessing human performance, measuring, measuring human performance, enhancing human performance um, and limitations of human performance, which to me was, yeah. And, and that's just what clicked in you know, like modeling sports science is well, like mod- models in anything in engineering and maths, like to me that's couldn't be more boring like there's might be people listening to this thinking like what is he on about like literally looking at maths and looking at numbers on the spreadsheet like it I, I hated that at school would not have understood it i'd have been you'd have thought i was like the thickest kid in the class i just wouldn't have got it but once you apply it to sport and you get it and you understand it and this was a good thing that you know like, and, I, and i have to give danny's credit for educating us in this way it's amazing how much better you can understand these models when you've actually done them yourself. Like I know there's lots of sports scientists out there and top coaches that can't quite get their heads around some of the, some of the application of some of these models. They just don't believe it's true. They say, you know, like they'll argue, you know, like the, the rationale or reasons or why they're not true, but, but I know for a fact they've not tried them when you've literally tried them and you can predict these numbers to a couple of Watts, it really makes you appreciate and understand how good some of these models can be and how useful they can be. Again, every model has its flaw, but yeah, we definitely found a way to make them work for us. So it's a lot easier to apply these models when you're working on the track, isn't it? Because you've got a lot more variables that are, that you, that are known and less, and less variable, if you like. Um, when you're trying to apply them to things out on the road, it becomes more difficult, I guess. Yes, um, I mean, like I said, like I say, is it like I, th- I think the expression is every model is wrong, but some models are less wrong than others. Like it's just you know, it's it's just what you choose to take from them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like if you try and use any model as absolute gospel, then like you know, you're asked you're asking for trouble. And yes, the more variables you've got, the more potentially problematic it is. But it's the exact same, you know, like the same models that we used on the track. Like I know Dan is like you is like using with on the road for his own time trialing and for like work with other teams and other stuff in terms of it's just the same thing with a few added bits of complication in it. But obviously the best way to test that it works is to test it in that closed short environment. And that's how he developed all his models through that when we did know things were closed. And then once you have confidence in it and confidence that it's working, then you can say, oh, well, what if the wind's doing this? What does that hill do that obviously you haven't got on the track? And then you can start to implement these things and look at it. And again, like you can take, you can still like choose to use, take things with a pinch of salt, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's still a lot of valuable data to be had with some of these models that you can come up with. Is, is Best Bike Split a good example then of using modeling to try and predict performances on different courses? So I've not actually used Best Bike Split. I use my Windsock. Um, okay. It can be. Um, in my experience, you have to play with it a little bit because mm-hmm. you have to remember that the model that you've come up with, like, so if you were to just put in your CDA, your rolling resistance and your power into my windsock, it would give you a, a ballpark within a few minutes. But obviously, like, again, this is where understanding how the data works and all the limitations makes a massive difference. So it'll give you a rough ballpark. Is it going to get it within two minutes with, if you were to put those separate numbers in? No, because that's not what's actually happening. Like, is your power meter calibrated exactly correct? For a lot of people, probably not. I recalibrated mine uh, last week, 2.7% out. That's super common. Like, honestly, like, all my power, like, whenever I calibrate my 
power meter. No matter if I think this is finally going to be the power meter that's going to be under reading and it's going to turn out I've been riding amazingly. I'm adamant that like everyone I ride with my power meter is lower than. And I go to calibrate and it still says it's over reading. Most power meters, for whatever reason, seem to drift towards the over reading side of things for whatever reason. I, I don't know the exact ins and outs. Um, but yes, yeah, so the chance, so you know, you need, you need to obviously make sure that's correct. The CDA number you've, that let's say you've put in because you've been to a wind tunnel or you've been to an air test with Dan or another person, et cetera. That number is obviously based on you holding that amazing position for the full duration. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, you, the second you come out on, you know, like on, on a climb, it makes sense to come out of the tops. But obviously that it is still very slightly slower to do that. You know, that is still messing with the calculation. If you don't, if you don't hold that position all the way through, you drink, you pick your head up. Then there's obviously the, the energy you lose cornering, the energy. And then the, the other one is actually UK time trials. It under predicts because in UK time trials and dual carriageways, because you have so many lorries and cars coming past you on the super fast courses, that they can reduce, like if, if you work it out, it, it is the equivalent to reducing your CDA by it was 10%. So again, if you start to look at well, what are all these other things that are mm-hmm. coming up, happening, then you know you can start to look for limitations. The best way that I find to use those tools is to see what is to reverse calculate is actually to reverse calculate what it thinks like some of your key numbers are. So what so basically like reverse calculate. So you did do two hours twenty for half iron man. Like what numbers do you have to figure out and change on that? Um, spreadsheet for it to come out with. So my so my uh, numbers in the tunnel might have a CDA of 0.195. Um, but then my windsock might say 0.205. So then what I'll do is I'll model it based on the numbers that it normally spits out from its own calculation. And as soon as mm-hmm. I start to do that, then I can normally get it within a minute or so when it comes to predicting what you are capable of doing, um, if that makes sense. So yeah, th- th- there's definitely use for them. I think the other thing though is that you've also like is what's the use in knowing exactly what you can do within a minute? Like, because right. how does that actually help you other than it's just a nice thing that you're like, oh, if I was to save these watts and I was to do this amount of extra power, look how amazing I'd be. So so for me, I, you know, as a coach, I'd be like, I'd be saying to somebody, right, well, if you want to go to Kona, for instance, or if you want to qualify for the GB age groups, if we look at data from this particular qualification qualification race. Over the last few years, we know that the top four people usually qualify. And and if you look at five years worth of averages, which will take into account varying different um, weather situations, um, it's somewhere around, you know, for a standard distance race, two hours, let's say a 40-year-old man, two hours to two hours and five minutes on this particular course. And then if we break that down, these these folks are usually swimming around 22 minutes. They're usually biking around an hour and five and they're usually running this time. And then there's transitions. So if they're biking an hour and five on a 25 mile course, um, what does that mean for you? What have you got to perform at to get an hour and five? So if you're going, looking at them and saying, right, you're 75 kilos and you want to ride an hour and five and we can work out your CDA. So therefore what sort of functional threshold do we need to try and find during the winter so that you can then, um, rides sort of sub, uh, around 85% of that in order to get that time. Is that, is that, is that how you would look at that type of uh, problem? Yeah. So yeah, like, yes and no. Like as in, is a needs, is a needs analysis, which is essentially what you're saying, a really important, great part of sport. Yes. Like it's, it's I, I, I do for me, for me, like, like I, I get off on that stuff. I find that really, I love making, I love going through and be like, what can I do for this thing? And I actually find triathlon super like, super annoying because 
when you actually, because so many of the distances are short and off and you can't work out what transition is. So I do sit there trying to be like, what can I do for that? What can I do for this? And I'm like, well, is that swim time based on the time out of the swim, which I know I could do, say, 32 minutes for a half Ironman for 33 minutes for a half Ironman for, or is the time that everyone's doing in that event out of the pool and then 600 metres halfway mm-hmm. through a four before they actually get to the timing mat? Mm-hmm. So I do find triathlon quite frustrating for the, the, the step distances aren't that set and the timing mats aren't all quite consistent mm. you know courses can vary in that sense so actually when i'm making all these models i can find it a bit of a pain in triathlon and i wish it would be more accurate in that sense um it can be super helpful but again so from my experience i again somewhat limited i have made lots of great models of what i'm capable of doing this year in triathlon, I've gone through numerous of the outlaw events. I went through events that I was not going to done or I looked at doing. As helpful as it was, or as nice as it is to have a direction of where you're going, and the important as it is, like, did it influence my overall training? And the answer is no, because I was already trying my best to improve my swim. I was already trying my best to improve my bike. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether improving, like, I, there's definitely a place for working out where you know where's the lowest hanging fruit for you to do this to meet this needs analysis this is the priority so we do need more bike time for you more run time for you that that that, that makes sense i'm not saying you can't have you shouldn't be going completely blind but obviously the issue for me like this year like i can talk about my failings in a bit more detail later on um would just you know it you can have these goals but ultimately i needed to be i needed to do better i needed to be better all-round fitter this year. I needed to have spent more time on the bike. I needed to have spent more time on the run. I can count me calculating an extra minute or so or accurately for my predicted projections made no difference to my performance in these races. Mm. The issue was I did not train well enough or hard enough or smart enough this summer to have achieved what I wanted to achieve. And no matter what I modeled in a perfect scenario, made zero difference that if that makes sense. Yeah, because there's so many confounding factors, isn't there? So you could get the you could get the precision of your training but then if you aren't particularly mobile around the shoulders or the hips that's going to affect your position in the water so no matter how much training you do how fast you try to swim your streamline is going to be off because you're because you're not doing enough dry land work um you, you talked about being able to get into a position on the bike an aero position but then you also talked about being able to hold that position so those are two different things um, so again, if you aren't particularly strong around the shoulders to hold your aero position, if you aren't particularly flexible around the lower back and the hips, um, you're going to have to keep coming out of that position to stretch. Um, if you don't have the strength in your calves, then after you've biked hard and then you start running, you might not be able to run very easily. And so no matter how aerobically fit you are and how well you can do track sessions when you're fresh, um, again, your performance is going to be disrupted in a race because fatigue setting in. Then we've got nutrition. <laughs> That's another whole thing that affects your fitness without um, that a lot of people overlook. And, and then there's mindset as well. Um, and so yeah. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good your modelling is if your nutrition's off and your mindset's off. Then um, that's going to affect your uh, your guesstimated race result. Well, yeah. So like again, like, so it's not saying that modelling's not important and can't help. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not suggesting it's not, what, what I'm. It's not. It's not getting lost with it because yeah. Like, so a good example for me, you know, like I can give you this example. I had modelled out what I wanted to do at Outlaw Half Nottingham this year. I worked out exactly what CDA I want. Like I was going to ride out what my um, what power I needed to do to that. What you know, like roughly what my heart rate would come out at. What I wanted to run out. What I wanted to swim at what I wanted my transitions to be based on historic transition times, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and for whatever reason, I was just in a really bad headspace that week. Bad headspace. I didn't want to really be there. On the on the morning, I just woke up late. Like, no, I didn't, I didn't wake up late. I just woke up tired. I just wasn't up for it. I wasn't motivated at that time in the morning. And modeling, like, you know, it, it meant that I'd got I did the swim and I was 30 seconds off where I wanted to be. Not the end of the world, but it, again, you kind of like you then panic in that. You know, did I do it like, you know, well, it's too late. I'm worrying that I'm down on this make-believe model that I've ultimately mm. made that didn't factor in me having a bad head and not feeling motivated at 6am in the morning. Like that did not factor that in. And then on the bike, I just decided, like, I stuck to it religiously. I was like, I'm going to do this bike split. And ultimately on the day, I wasn't on for a good day. I wasn't feeling good. I should have listened to myself and been smarter and said, you are not on for a good day calm it down just do what you need to do like, like I, I thought i'd already been relatively relaxed in my model i would not like gone if i do my best ever bike power it was quite conservative but i'd still but ultimately i just wasn't i was on a day where i could do it but it just came but i, I just shouldn't have i should have listened and said look you're on a bad day just get this event done first one of the year just tick it off instead i rode to that split mm. exactly Got what I need to do on the bike. It wasn't amazing, you know. Like I'm an ex semi pro cyclist. I was only like, I don't think I didn't. I probably fifth, sixth fastest. I'm guessing. I don't know. I wasn't like in the top couple. So again, I hadn't done anything insane, but it just wasn't the right thing for me to do on the day. I thought about the model rather than rather than the feeling and how I was getting on. And I started the run, and yeah, and it, I just went off again too fast because I was modeling this idea that. I wanted to do this time that was just the time I wanted to do, not a time that was based on, it was, you know, it was optimism rather than physiology. And then, yeah. So then after pushing myself too hard on the bike, went off too hard on the run, a lap later I was walking and then a lap later I was in my car and off in a sulk and going home. Like, so you need to, you know, like, so you can have these models, but you obviously have to set like, you know, rules to listen to your body mm. on that day. And you can't just say, I want to do this. I think I'm going to do that because, yeah, it, it, it's it's also a, it's a it can always be a recipe for disaster. So you, you've got to have rules of engagement of when when do you think that's a good thing to follow, and when do you also listen to your body, listen to your legs, and then kind of make a decision from there. I'll, I'll give you a great example to, similar to that. Uh, I was working with a, a guy who um, had done a PB in triathlon Ironman before. He was going off to do this race. Thought he could go about forty to fifty minutes faster. He says he, he says he distinctly remembers when he told me what his target was for the race, looking at it with eyes wide open, like that little emoji and like, oh, really? So I'm trying to play along with it, saying, suggesting maybe a more cautious approach. Um, but he'd worked it all out and it was quite a fast course. On the day, there was a big current in the sea. So when he came out, the time that he would predicted for the swim was like you described, a little bit slower. Um, he got on the bike and he was already a bit pissed off with his time. He set off on the bike. Um, his Garmin stopped working after about 10 miles. So now he had nothing to sort of tell him what power he was at and he hadn't practiced going by feel. Um, so he was now doubly pissed off. Then he met a guy who said, oh yeah, how was your swim? Oh yeah, it was a bit slow, wasn't it? He said, oh yeah, I've heard that there was a real strong current today. So that made him feel a bit better. But by now he was going on about all his friends that were watching from home. I, I'm not going to bother with this. You know, I don't care about them. So he, he just rolled along on the bike trotted around on the run and then his wife said to him oh you know what you're doing pretty well if you could pick it up you might get a pb here so he managed to pick it back up for the last 10k of the race but he didn't beat his pb 
because he was trying to follow a flawed model based on um, unrealistic expectations and and then the wrong mindset. So it's almost exactly what you say. If he'd been more realistic and had a more open, um, sort of flexible mindset, he might have had a better race or a better, at least a better race day experience. Yeah. So like I said, like, like have them use them. Like, can you like definitely like think about how you can prior, prioritize like certain disciplines or I need to do more work on this, that, the other. Um, but yeah, like it's it, at, at the same time, I think people can get one of the worst things you can do is almost get over caught up in specifics of, I need to say bike this power or I need to swim, I need to swim this pace or run this pace. And then people then, suddenly change the training to you know, they come up with this model and then they'll change the training to exactly that. I'm going to do loads of running at four 30 minute Ks, five minute Ks or whatever. But you need like the, the whole point of training is you're trying to create adaptations that will make you successful on race day, running specifically at a certain pace or biking specifically at a certain pace that you want to race at. There's no science to say that exercising at that specific intensity unless by luck it happens to be on, on the right kind of domain is what improve is, is what, you know, is what creates adaptation is what improves you. Like, again, I, that when I, when I spoke at the start of the show, I said, um, we did a thought, we did an individual pursuit years ago that failed before we did it with Dan and his team. I remember for that year being like, my five minute power is not great. Like, there's a national pursuit coming up. I'll just target this and doing loads of four minute efforts at like, like bang on like what I thought the pursuit power should be. And then like doing two minute efforts at it with small recoveries and another two minutes and then trying to build up three minutes. And it all sounded really clever. It all sounded great that like I'm nailing like this kind of 450 watt mark or whatever, because that's what we're on the ride. Loads of efforts at it one way or another. Be it, yeah. Came to race day. And it was probably one of the worst four minute efforts I've ever done because doing four minute efforts or riding 450 watts isn't necessarily the best way to be good to improve you to improve your potential four minute power or to improve your ability to ride 450 watts that's not how that works like it's you know the things that make you go well for four minutes are having this mad aerobic power loads of mitochondria you know increased blood plasma volume like blah 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 like there's all these different things so you you should be training to improve those things not just training a set pace or a set power or etc okay so quickly then how would you have gone about that looking back on it if you'd got chance to do it again are you saying you'd have done a lot more long steady riding at a slower pace which we know has a better effect on building mitochondria yeah like like i mean this was 2014 so a long time ago um but yeah like it it, it, you know, it, it wasn't a it wasn't a massive thing it was an end of season i needed something to do to keep myself a bit motivated it's so only got kind of six weeks but yeah like the, how would i have done it differently yeah I, I basically kind of threw volume out and just went smashy smashy for this particular thing and yeah like, and my and what it probably did was cost me aerobic power i ended up kind of training in no man's land enough because it wasn't quite hard enough that it was really giving me mm. a big anaerobic boost and then i was regretting and then i was probably losing my aerobic power through not doing three four five hour rides or whatever yeah Still, it, was a bit, it was a bit of a middle ground you know like it's, it's what people you know, at the time it was you know, what people call vo2 max interval but vo2 max interval don't improve vo2 max that's just a name that the training bible came up with for four or five minute efforts mm-hmm. The O2 max is pretty station is pretty set. Like it doesn't change massively like after two, three years of training. So even if it was targeted towards that, I'll, it then just means I was trying to train this thing that doesn't improve. Um, right, so, he, so here's a little rabbit hole then. So I, I've, I've often been asked this is if, if, you know, in, in well-trained human beings, once you've got to a certain level of VO2 max, it, as you say, it doesn't change very much. So if that's the point or if that's the case, what is the actual point 
I'm asking on behalf of all those listeners now and thinking, well, why would somebody prescribe VO2 max intervals then if I'm not improving my VO2 max? And the scientist says... Right, so, again, this is like a proper rabbit hole. So, yeah, you obviously go, you can go to a lab and you can get your VO2 max. Now, again, I, I think there's, there's, there's valuable data you can get from, from labs. Is VO2 max the most valuable data that you can take away from a lab? Probably not. There's not a lot you can do with that. After two or three years of, of being a well-trained athlete, that normally does not move a lot. It might move two was it two mil per body weight kilo per minute or whatever the kind of units are that you attach on the end of it. But um it's not the, the main to be honest, after two, three years of training, the main way that you're going to improve that is actually by just dropping weight, which isn't necessarily the best thing for overall performance, depending on where you're at. If you're overweight, then yes it is. If you're already at race weight, then trying to drop more weight might be good for improving that lab value, but it might not be better for anything else. So that's VO2, that's VO2 max. So it's a number that's pretty set. Then for whatever reason, the industry of coaching and they talk about in two to two to six minutes, people call VO2 max intervals. Now, there is not a single study that really suggests that they improve your VO2 max. Like things that do improve your VO2 max, you know, over time, you know, VO2 max probably does correlate, you know, with other than genetics, you know, probably total volume of training. Other things, but there is nothing to say that yeah, these five you know, the American way of doing it is five by five minute effort, and then the other one is people then try and over confuse it by doing by riding the number that you got to at the end of your lab test. Mm-hmm. But obviously, so that number is an irrelevant number, it's, it's a baseline number that you can test back and see if you've improved. If you go back into that lab two years' time and it's the same protocol you follow, if that number's improved or improved per body weight kilo then that's a baseline metric that shows that's a, it's a performance measure that shows you potentially improved, but that number doesn't mean anything because it just, it just depends on how you've got to VO2 max. You can get to VO2 max by doing a time, by doing a 20 minute time trial. You can get to VO2 max by doing 20 watt steps every minute. You can do it by doing three by well, 30 watt steps every five minutes. Like if you are at max, you know, you can get to VO2. You know, if you are going as hard as you can, you can get to VO2 max roughly. Obviously, if you, if this is, let's say, as long as we're talking between kind of four to 20, 25 minutes. After that point there, then you probably won't quite reach it because you'll be too fatigued to get there. But any protocol can get you to VO2 max. Doing to batter intervals, 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off, if you go hard enough, can get you to the number. And every one of those would give you a different number at the end. So what, every- are, we actually, what are we actually developing then when we work at that level? If we're not boosting our VO2 max, what are we doing? Are we improving our tolerance to work at that level? Are we improving our, our ability of our body to clear the lactate that's produced by working at that level? Right. So in then in, yes, in terms of, okay. So yeah, okay, so, so, sorry, I've gone through the caveats of, of like lab testing VO2 max metrics or whatever. So in terms of when you are doing any of those efforts, again, there's, 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 not, a, there's not great science at the moment anyway behind any specific session being particularly better than another session. Um, one of very few was, um, I think it was, I think it was Siler. I think Siler's group. Oh, is like this the four by eight minutes? Yeah, they've done the four by, they did four by four, four by eight and four by 16 and said, mm-hmm. which one showed the most improvement. Um, I can't remember the top of my head if like, like what the VO2 max came out as an improvement in that or not, but that's what, that is one of very few studies that shows improvements as, as you know, a specific 
interval or exercise that shows improvements um you know tabatas is another one um 30 15s there's studies on on that you can just go over and under there's studies that show that they all show improve as an effort that can improve you aerobically likely as an outcome it depends on what they measure during that likely as an outcome of again any of these things that correlate with aerobic performance so increased hemoglobin increased uh alveoli in the lungs not that's particularly easily measurable uh might increase mitochondria increased yeah like all these different measures that i'm not saying that everyone of these studies measures all those things but like there's not a one golden bullet session that's better than the other what people have done and what's and and studies that people have done is just does a set amount of high intensity efforts of which anything above critical power or anything above threshold, does that improve performance? So, you know, the effects of an eight-week HIT program. Um, and, you know, if that's a Paul, like Paul Larson and um, their group, do yes. like, they, they love HIT, essentially. That's the, yep. that's their thing. Um, they're often kind of in trouble in the sports science world because they're maybe a bit too biased towards HIT. And then, like, they get kind of told, you're a bit biased, and they put... So then at the very end, they'll be like, HIT's best. But also, long steady duration can be good as well. Like they kind of like it's like, uh, and then they get let off with it. But there is no again that that is based off eight weeks. If I was to, if I wanted to improve someone for just eight weeks, then yes, a boatload of hit. Mm. Depending how you want to do it, to batters, five minute intervals, four minute intervals, twenty minute maximum intervals, that would improve you probably the best within an eight week period. But that's not to say that's the thing that's going to improve you the most over a year. Like and that's where this and that's where the studies of periodization coming in, you know, the 80, 20s. And then there's all the debate around does 80, 20 work and is 80, 20 really 80, 20 and is it not actually pyramidal? And that's where there's also more debate. Well, if you talk to Stephen Seiler, when he did his research, he, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's 20% of your training. It's well, he said, no, it's actually not 20% of your training. It's 20% of your sessions. So 80% of your sessions are, uh, this low intensity below the aerobic threshold, 20% of, 20% of your sessions is above that level. And again, questionable, what, what what does above that level mean? Does it mean uh, super short hit stuff? Does it mean sweet spot stuff, et cetera, et cetera? Um, but, if, but effectively, if you've got 10 sessions in a week, then two of them are these ones. That was his his definition. Then you talk to people who go, oh, no, but it's all 90, 10. 90 means the volume, 10% the volume. If you're doing 10 hours a week, 10% of that is 60 minutes. You try doing 60 minutes of training, at that sort of really high intensity, that's pretty fatiguing for most age group athletes in there, a week. Yeah, there, there's a lot of nuance to all this because yeah. again, that twenty percent could be very a very different twenty if it's based on just above threshold or if it's based on like a track session, you know, where you're smashing at four hundreds full gas, like or three hundred, two hundreds full gas. You know, like very different sessions, <laughs> very different stimulus coming up. Now, like I say, no one has really pinpointed the exact adaptation that happens from every different session you go through, let's say you go through the training Bible and there's a big glossary of training sessions in there. Now, mm. like, again, like the training Bible gets a bit, a bit of a hat, like piss taken out of a little bit for, you know, it's over reliance on TSS and it's a bit simplified, but a lot of the sessions are, 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 are using the right plays are good sessions that can be used mm. that don't necessarily do what they say they're meant to do because that's kind of just based on a, and made there's that made up sheet that shows that sweet spots the best bang for buck based on it 
it has, you know, like there's, I think a lot of people have seen that there's these two lines that intersect each other depending on training benefit versus training cost. And then someone's drawn a circle in the middle and said, this is sweet spot. That's not based on any science. Someone's just drawn a chart mm-hmm. and, and, and people have said it's science because it's on a chart. There's no science behind that. That's well, um, that's what, well, that's exactly when people say what's pseudoscience, that is pseudoscience right there. Yeah, isn't it? And it, it's, it's promoted so heavily. And that's not to say sweet spots, not valuable athletes time trialists cyclists have done varying levels of sweet spot like the average runner you know does a lot of they find tempo to be a very successful session what a runner calls tempo is more of what we call sweet spot or threshold mm-hmm. everyone has these different terms they all interlink but basically all my chat today is actually going to end up being is saying that the reason that you find it confusing is it, because it is confusing and that no one actually knows the answers to any of these things which is the, which is the problem so again i'm kind of going to go back to that point a little bit so what the four or five minute efforts do no one knows people know that you should try and be doing roughly what two hard sessions a week could be three hard sessions a week that would depend on the individual based on what works for them are four or five minute sessions good for some people they are if you do four or five minute sessions and they work for you and you find that you're flying a few weeks after doing six weeks of them then potentially they're a great session for you if you find they knack you and they just take too much from you and they, they come at too great a cost because your long rides then don't go on the weekend or you lose motivation after doing them, then they're too hard or you just don't find that you get that benefit mm. of stimulus. While we don't know the definitive answer of what is an amazing session, what isn't an amazing session, it's still a case of having a trial and error of what sessions work well for you. If you like, again, we take the mick a little bit, I would say like if a coach only sets two 20 sweet spots all year round, but for some people, that session works really well. And like mm-hmm. athletes, especially like where the work's done sub-maximally, that session can work well for people. For the athletes I work with, a lot of them being that higher intensity-based riders, I don't think it's the best session in the world, but I have some people that react really well off it. And I have some, some athletes that don't react well off it at all. And you, know, like, you, you can roughly characterize athletes between more slow twitch and more fast twitch. I've kind of seen that I see more similar trends between the people that are seriously more slow, seriously more fast. Mm. I do see that they adapt differently. I know like people have tried to talk about matching this phenotype up and giving them different training, giving them different stimulus. But I think you just have to map, as long as you train people or train yourself based on this, does it work for you? Do you feel it's working? Do you feel that you get an adaptation from it? Then any session can work yeah. like, as long as you feel that it's working for you. I've What I've found great, success in with a lot of the athletes that are in my group where I don't control, I don't coach them directly. I just set structure for them is to encourage them to definitely train a bit easier. I think most people have a tendency to train too hard. And you talked earlier on about when you were doing those um, training for that pursuit and you weren't doing enough, you weren't going hard enough, but you weren't going easy enough and you ended up in that middle ground. I've seen a lot of people doing that and, and ending up too tired. So getting them to getting them to slow down a bit means they end up not getting too tired and not getting injured. So they, they, they improve the consistency and actually they're then a bit fresher when it does come to doing those one or two high intensity interval sessions. And it doesn't seem to matter what they do. So per your um, comment a moment ago, but if they do a variety of those on a consistent basis and they look after themselves, Hey, presto come, come 12 months time. They're all improving as if by magic. Yeah, like 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 consistency is still the massive one, and like it's 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 you, know, you can't overestimate like how important consistency is. And like so, I went down. So I've to try and improve my running. I've started going down a local uh, run group with a local run group, 
and to be honest, yeah, the session's too hard. Like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get them to chill it out. Mm. Like again, to give, to give you an idea, I think the other day it was 800, 600, 500, 400, three, 300, something like that, 200 maybe to finish. And we did two sets of that. Wow. But it was done full gas. Like there's guys there that I put a couple of minutes into in the 10K a few weeks ago and they were like battering me. So they're like, God knows what they're doing. I'm at 180 beats a minute, which is I've got round national series races without hitting that heart rate. So I'm digging in like real hard, like well above, you know, doing, I'm, again, lots of lactate going off. It's a bloody hard session. Sorry, I just keep swearing. Um, but um, I come back and I'm, I'm knackered from it. And like the next day I feel rubbish. I didn't really want to, and like I'm not robust enough at the moment, it's not trained enough that I could really then, I then wouldn't get out and do like a good three, four hour ride the next day because I just feel knackered because that session would take so much out of me. Mm. Did I get that much benefit from that? Well, not really. I could, like, I could probably have got the same benefit, if not more benefit, from maybe again three or four, like three or four, like, I don't know, maybe say, let's say three two Ks instead, but just done just above threshold, just you know. So it'd been hard. I'd been breathing. It wouldn't have been an easy session. I'd have done an extra two K of hard work, mm. more time breathing, more time hard, potentially more adaptation to come from that session. But I wouldn't be absolutely fried the next day. Well, that's a, yeah. consistently. That's a good point, isn't it? Because that session to me looks like one of those Instagram hero sessions that gets posted up, and everybody looks at it and goes, "Wow, you're training hard." But then, the problem with hero sessions is often that people then are like you say, there they can't train the next day. And I always think if if you've got a session that's so hard that it means you can't train the next day, what's the point? You know? Yeah, like they, they they say like again, it's, it's difficult to do like. It's difficult to kind of find this. There is this fine line, I think, especially the like the kind of the newer you are to sport, finding the line between hard and super hard mm. is is gets progressively more difficult. Like, I think like, I'm pretty like astute to train. I've been training with the power meters and scientifically for only 30, but still for 10 plus years now. Um, I, I can find it kind of find the difference between what I know is hard and not hard. Whereas again, if all you do is train at you know it's like they say it's 85 90 max heart rate for every steady run which is probably already too hard and when you come to a track session then you're going to pick it up and you're going to run 95 percent your max heart rate for these efforts then yeah it's just too much you won't adapt you won't recover and they say about kipchoge they say like you know he obviously trains hard but he's never like heroically on the floor gasping for breath like, well, they, you know, like, they, they, we get we always get so we always get sold this it's about hard work you know road you know you see videos as in women you know like all these things but that that's not necessarily what promotes adaptation that's what i keep trying to like kind of get at it's what promotes adaptation it's not what's hard the the, the kind of cheeky way that i say to people is i'm i'm setting you sessions that's what i'm doing i'm trying to create a specific molecular adaptation to take place like mm-hmm. again i can't pinpoint exactly what that is but i know that enough of these different combinations should mm-hmm. be this kind of specific adaptation i'm not trying to tie you out you're not a husky this isn't a wearing down process like <laughs> i'm not just trying, otherwise i'd be throwing a ball at you i get you to chase the ball as fast as you can you're out there to your training is there to serve a specific purpose of promoting an adaptation that will benefit you when it comes to race day you're not there to either match race replicate to to just replicate what you're doing in a race or to just tie yourself out as successfully as possible because those two things do not correlate with end day race performance they just correlate with tiredness and fatigue which makes you less consistent i mean there's a lot talked about the norwegians um now in triathlon because they're very successful and also on the track with the ingebrigtsons and i've read um 
Alan Cousins had written an article in one of the triathlon magazines in America talking about the types of training they did. And then he put Emma Kate Lidbury through that. And his analogy was if you, when they get into the end of their track sessions, they're walking around. Yes, they're out of breath, but they're not lying on the floor, gasping for breath. They're not hands on their knees, just doubled over in pain, not able to speak. So they're, they're, those efforts are getting to a point where they're fatigued and they're hard, but they're not so hard they can't do another one. They're not so hard that they can't speak. And when they finish the session, they could probably always manage one more. And that's probably why, again, they're getting that consistency because they're not, they're not overreaching on each session. Yeah, and I say if you are, you know, as you are getting fitter, then that's what you should do. You go that, you put an extra couple of reps in, you get more time spent going hard. Don't just try and run even harder or even faster. Well, that's, that's a Kipchoge thing as well, isn't it? It's density. It's not trying to run faster. It's just trying to put more, um, put more at that same speed with less rest in the session. Yeah, so that, 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 that's 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 another way of doing it. And yeah, like I know, I know a lot of things that Alan Cousins says can be useful. A lot of them can be questionable. <laughs> um, he's definitely, he's definitely colourful, colourful on Twitter, isn't he? But um, yeah, I could I could do a pod, could do a podcast on arguing some of these points. Some of them, some of them are really good. Yeah, um, I know he's got, he, he yes he gets into the weeds on some stuff. I like, I like Alan. He puts some good stuff out there, and he certainly brings people's attention to things. Um, maybe bit, in the not, not like the right Mar- way. He's a bit like Marmite. Yeah, I, I think some of, some of the things are correct. Some of the things are like either overly harsh or too. They're not they're too dehumanizing. Like mm-hmm. like again. If you happen to work with a robot, great. Train them like a robot. John Archibald is a robot. You could do exactly what Alan says. He says, do this, do that. John would do it. You know, you can do four-hour turbo sessions. Great. Good for John. It works for him. He won National 10 of the Week. Fantastic. But if you, unfortunately, that's not everyone. Not everyone can train in robot mode. That doesn't mean that you still don't want to be successful. You're just, unfortunately, not a robot. So if there's still things that you can do to try and be successful and be the most successful person that you can be without trying to follow rules that you just cannot follow. Like, so that's that's the only thing I'd say that there's times that I think Mm. his comments are just, I say dehumanizing and only very, very few people could live and train by how he says that's fine though. For those people that can do it, if you can't do it, that doesn't mean you have to give up or you're soft. That's just how you are. You optimize around the best that you're capable of doing. Well, I think I think you mentioned it there, didn't you? With with the working out which type of high intensity training works for you, it's finding it's finding the solution that works for you, and and that that's got to fit in with your family life, with your work life, with your social life, with your um, chronotype, um, with with everything else, and your goals in life, and your age. Um, yeah, let's, um, yeah. So, 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 there's there's plenty of top athletes that defy many many of his of his very set rules, like. Mm. The, there are, like you, there's no reason you can't be successful and still break many of his rules that you say you can't like you know there's there's athletes that I know they're going to all sorts of trouble like you can't like it's it's not a, it's not a generalized no. yeah, way that he sometimes makes it out to be. Um, let's let's talk about we talked about the Norwegians briefly. Um, you, I had a little insight into the way they train and um, working against them if you like because you were involved in the sub seven sub eight project so. Um, there's been a lot in the press. Uh, it's interesting to hear what happened from the inside. So tell us, tell us a little bit about your experiences there. Yeah, um, I will quickly just I will kind of have a bit of a dig at the, the, the Norwegian stuff it, again. Like there's there's so much hype mm. on the training. It clearly works for Gustav um, and Blumenfeld. Like you know, there's there's no you know they, those two are absolutely phenomenal. And there's obviously other assets going through. 
But then interestingly, Inga Britson's that is it his dad Gert, Gert is it? Yeah, he's like he's been critical of the of the of the Nor of what's classed as the Norwegian method, and he said that that's not how um, Jakob trains at all. Like so. Yeah, like like the, like the, it, it's not just you know the, the, there's Norwegian there's Norwegian athletes that are out there that just because the Norwegian aren't necessarily all training the exact same way. Every successful athlete is still like everyone can agree that there is still roughly this eighty percent of work is done steady, like one way or another. Like everyone can roughly agree on that, but there's still a lot of nuance between different disciplines, different sports, different types of aerobic mm. sport on how that top 20 is separated. And like I say, there was obviously no silos one, one way, but then there's this really good, there was a big study. I'm not sure it's officially out yet, but there, there, there's a big argument. It was like Simon Burnley um, and his camp arguing the exact opposite. Uh, that it's all that, 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 that what they actually, a lot of the, a lot of what they argued was actually that the studies that Silo had put out in his 80-20 were actually pyramidal. And he was mm-hmm. actually caught and he was actually misclarified, miscategorizing mis- mis- Okay, as pyramidal, as like, no, uh, yeah, as polarized as. Oh, I'm, I'm getting all confused. Isn't that? Yeah, I, I know what he's saying. He's saying what he's saying is he's identifying it as polarized, but it was pyramidal. That's what. That's some of the things that they were suggesting. Yeah, they were suggesting okay. that actually, if they were to do the same, look at the same study in the same cohort of athletes, they would say no. That group, you're you're saying that this they, that works for them because they're polarized, but actually, we're saying it works because they are pyramidal. And they're not polarized. But they can still all agree that the eighty percent underneath is still roughly the same. And I think mm-hmm. like with the Norwegians, it's still it's still the same thing. But there's still different groups within Norway that are separating ways of distributing that top twenty. Um, I think just before you go on to that, Jacob, um, you know I know Alistair and Johnny. I had um, wasn't directly involved with their coaching, but I saw them from a young age. And I know that again, they started from a young age, they were doing something slightly different to everybody else, which which gave them the advantage then until everybody started to catch up. They were doing a lot of volume. They were guided by Malcolm Brown, so they didn't do a lot of threshold work. They did a lot of higher intensity, but shorter intervals. Um, not too, you know, so it was fast, but it was not extremely fatiguing like we've just discussed. Um, but for those development years, they just got the work done in high volume, but they didn't miss a lot. And those formative years, of their um, aerobic conditioning were very consistent. And we keep coming back to that, don't we? And I I can go back to when I first started going on training camps with triathlon coaches back in the late 80s. And consistency, I wrote down in my first training diary that a a pro triathlete called Bernie Shrewsbury said, consistency is the key to success. And I can find that training diary now for you. And that was back in 1989. And uh, talk to you, talk to Sila, talk to Phil Maftone, talk to Dan Plews or... Paul Larson, all of whom we've we've mentioned today, and nearly all of them put consistency at the very top. And I think we can't get away from that fact that whichever way you choose to bake the cake, you've got to be consistent with it. Yeah, I I, I, I think what it's also the thing that people underestimate because consistency sounds easy. It sounds like that's the one you're in control. It, it sounds like that's the easy one. Everyone can be consistent. Not everyone can smash themselves in a in a crazy track session, but it sounds like everyone can be consistent. That always come. It's always portrayed as the easy one. I'll just just be consistent. Just sleep eight hours a night, be fine. Like, but we all know that it's not that easy. And actually, a lot of it can be about trying to find ways to to make the consistency mm. easy, and that you can do it and make it manageable. And 
you know, and, and then have that ability to mix things up a little bit and have some fun and enjoy different disciplines or different things and to have a level of like progression in there, but while still being trying to keep this consistency going. And that's what's so hard. And it's just proper, it's, it's just very underestimated how difficult consistency is to do. Um, it's the thing to do, but I, 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 I just think it also gets implied that it's the easy thing and it's not, it's, it's almost it's almost the hardest thing to actually get right and to do is to be able to still just just have this consistency and um, but yeah in terms of the way that these athletes train the you know the insight into all the athletes they're like like it, it goes without saying that all of these elite athletes in sub seven and sub eight are just absolutely phenomenal like they're not the same as I imagine the majority of people listening to this podcast, not the same as me, like they are just genetic freaks. There is no other way around it. Like the way that, you know, it, you, like you look at it and it doesn't even look that like, you know, you, you look, they don't always look that fast, but like you try and run the pace that some of those like were running at the end of sub seven and sub eight, you know, even the women, like the women and the men, it's, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, they are just absolute freaks. And the rules that apply to them don't always apply to us as well. Cause they have got very different lives. Um, they've got so much more recovery um, and yeah, th- things different. But I think they also all show that you can still get to this top peak level of success with different ways of getting there. Mm-hmm. I don't think Skipper trains the same way as the Browners. I don't think Browners train the same way as, well, we know they don't train the same way as the Norwegians. Um, I can't imagine that Kat and Nicola tra- train the exact same. Everyone can still have their own ways of training and working as long as you are, like say, applying the same rules of are you consistent? Are you looking back and making sure that the sessions are, are, are working for you? You're improving from them, you're enjoying them, are you going in the right direction? Again, like what we said at the start, still knowing your direction, know, like you know, still having a priority, having goals, knowing what needs to work for you. And you can still get there through all these different ways. Like I can only imagine how exactly different like, all those key athletes' ways of training are. And it shows you can still get there, but you but they but the similar thing is again 80% of it will be steady and it will all be consistent and none of them are messing about. I did uh, I think it was probably just after Cat had won Ironman Florida. So it's probably at least a year ago now. And um she was only doing she was just transitioning then. I think she'd just been signed up by BMC. So she was just transitioning out of the army to be a full-time athlete. She was only training 10 or 11 hours a week at that point, but still winning Ironman races. And obviously she's she's obviously got a lot of capacity. I'm not sure that she's um smashed her training up a great deal since then. Yeah, it'd be silly to do that, wouldn't it? Um, in her in her her level because you don't want to get injured so you've got to take a measured approach so she's probably on the lower end of the volume still um but still a phenomenal athlete and just continuing to improve um and also she's at the start of her career nicola spiriggs uh, had um at least two children i think and she's just retired after the pto championship rate or the relays the college cup uh, events so she and she's been at the top for an awful long time, so she's got a different approach and one that's definitely pointed towards longevity. But that probably also um, points to her, towards her physical durability as well, doesn't it? And that's different within different athletes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I might, it might be more than two children. I should know because they were running around the hotel. Um, yeah, she's like she's very, like very family orientated. Like, like there was yeah. women. As in like, I'll, I'll be honest. Like again, I've only kind of got back into triathlon in the last few years you know what athletes look like in the kit. You don't always know what athletes look like when they're normal. I didn't realize that 
that that was who Nicola was. There was just a, there was just like a, a nice woman walking around with the hotel with the kids. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to realise that's who that that's who this was. Like she like she didn't look like she didn't look like you know a, a top elite athlete until she was in a kit, and then suddenly it all changes. Um, but yeah, but she's like, she's had a very balanced. Uh, Jody Swallow talked about this. Her and Rita Hoog, like you said, a very family oriented, balanced harmonious life and I and I, I think that's overlooked as well in terms of success of athletes and their consistency is minimal stress balance harmony you know no conflict no friction it can't yeah, be overlooked no no that's definitely that's an in, and that's uh you know it kind of goes back to what you said about cat like I, I, I don't I'm kind of I'm on kind of Instagram Instagram friends with Kat now, like my girlfriend's uh, friends with her because she was on her team. I don't know too much of her I don't have a massive insight into how she has changed the training. But as you say, that actually, if you were doing 10, let's say she was doing 10 to 15 hours a week and then she's gone full time, it's not just a case of you've now got more time to train. The, the biggest factor there is you've now got more time to recover. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the big one that people forget about. And that's equally the reason why, as a normal athlete, you can't just do, if you've got wife, kids, it's why you can't do 20 hours a week. It's not because there's not time. We could all sacrifice two hours of sleep and get and get up and do it if you really have to in the first thing in the morning. But it's there is there's absolutely no benefit in doing that because you would just not you'd not be recovering from it. So any additional training would just be making yourself more tired rather than recovering. And yeah, it's an interesting point that since transition, like that she she may well have just said this approach works for me. Do you know what's going to work better is doing this, but now having the opportunity to recover even better than I had before. Yeah, I, I think, and that's always a difficult thing for for athletes who are turning from. Um, working to be full time is what do I do with that time? And you see a lot of people make that mistake that they add in lots more training and it's just too much for them. Um, so g- going back to the sub seven, sub eight, what was what was your involvement? Um, so I was in charge of the uh, in charge of the bike split originally. That that was my that was what I was t- tasked with. There, uh, me and Dan got brought in to a meeting in Hoob. Um, Alistair and his agent were there, and they said, you know, this is we're going to do this sub seven project would like to be involved would like you to just basically work on the bike leg so you know you know like you know like we were there for like some of the meetings in terms like we were there from you know the start in terms of like the meetings on like some of the rules and what they were going to be um having like a bit of fun like you know trying to argue what rules you can and can't do because there's mm-hmm. also there's also the nuance of if, if we don't bring it up there's maybe some things that we could think to play out on the day that they'd not thought to ban and things like that um so yeah there was all this kind of like fun with like fun with putting together and then yeah Dan went off to Ineos so then it was very much I was then pretty much stuck, like in charge of the, the team now thankfully through the track team it meant that I've lived I've literally lived with a lot of fast cyclists and I've got a pretty fast phone book so I've got a combination of the guys that run for like who what right before um and the current teammates I'd got at uh, River World tight, and then also a few guys that I also coached that I just knew were very good time trial specialists. Um, and then yeah, and then we just got we got out there, and then once Dan was there, Dan was able to help join in with a bit more. The again, like his level of modelling is a level above mine. So then Dan would so then Dan then kind of did the specific modelling, and I just ran the I was like the management, just the manager there on the day. Um, the, the the additional thing was that unfortunately once Alistair pulled out and uh, some of his kind of entourage pulled out with him was that Joe kind of then turned up and it was just Joe and a few of his agents, which were obviously good at doing their agent stuff, but not necessarily the rest of it. So I almost ended up a bit more uh, like in, in charge of the full attempt from this side. So um trying to kind of organise things and put things together. So there's a lot, a lot of running, a lot of running around and a very busy two weeks that uh, definitely 
was a fantastic experience. It did not help this year's progression in terms of triathlon. Consistency of my own training went out the window. But um, yeah, it was a great event to be a part of. So I guess Alistair or Joe came in um, after Alistair pulled out. They've already got the fitness. They already know how to ride fast. You know, they've got the speed there. Was it more a logistical thing? Like, where are we going to place them in a group of how many riders do we need in the team? Um, who's going at the front? What sort of t- lengths of turns are they going? Where's Joe going to ride? Is it better for him to ride at the back or is it better to ride for, um, you know, um, one in from the back? Uh, who's going to be in front of him? You know, is he got somebody who's a reliable, steady rider who's going to be riding in a straight line or all over the place? Um, what are they going to do about fueling? Was it was it really sort of technical details like that rather than identifying you need to ride at this FTP or this yeah, type of yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So more than that. So I'm much done more than the first part. So um, we'd already done a bit of a collection session at Mallory Park uh, with Alistair um, close in a year before. Um if anything, more of just seeing you know, what data we could take from it and what quality of data we could get, get from it to see what we needed to do in advance and what we needed to do when we got there. Um, interestingly, their team actually thought that we were turning up really underprepared because we only turned up a week or so before without a particular, you know, like without a, yeah, and, and we hadn't really practiced together. But again, that was where I think they just didn't realise that while we'd not practiced together, half over half the team had lived together at one point and literally put their lives on hold to practice riding on each other's wheels. Mm-hmm. So riding together was not a problem for us, um, which is quite funny because I think they underestimated that massively. Like that, yeah, we'd the guys that we selected weren't just powerhouses, they were very specifically powerhouses that were good at going over and below threshold and riding very close on a wheel. That's why these guys were selected. Mm. Um, you know, like it's, it's, it's almost comical when you do turn up to pure TTTs. There's some, there's some very good time trialists out there that cannot ride above their threshold power very well mm-hmm. at all. Like me and Dan was the TTT somewhere. And it was meant to be a four-up TT, a four-up time uh, team time trial. Johnny pulled out two weeks before. Cy punctured about five minutes in. So it was a two-up TT with just me and Dan. Dan being substantially stronger than I was, and I think we won it by by almost two minutes. Just and like and there's you know, plenty of the guys in the other teams were better time trialists than myself. They maybe weren't all quite as good as Dan individually. But the difference was me and Dan can just ride well, like above threshold and below threshold really well. Right. And, the, and basically, they just didn't really go any quicker than they'd all have ridden as a one-up time trial. If that makes sense. And we'd got guys that are specifically good at doing that. I think wise they'd got a few time trialists that. That's just not their natural physiology. They're very good at running a set pace, but not miles above it. Um, so yeah, so it was a case of the best date, the best data was the data you could get when you were there on the track. So we mm-hmm. saved, we saved all our efforts to doing it there. There's no point again, we had no idea, we had modeled it very briefly to have an idea of so when we were there, we weren't wasting time trying bizarre ideas. We had a few rough guidelines of what worked, but ultimately it was a case of get there. As soon as we were there, get on the track, start recording data, start trying different formations, start trying different ideas. Um, and then we influenced it from there once we knew what we'd actually got to deal with. As you say, model, as we say, at the start, models can be wrong. If you'd done this on a track that was a lot bumpier or had very different wind angles, then you could have made you could have made a perfect model that just would not have worked in this completely different circumstance. So we then got there, put all these combinations together, tried Joe in different positions, see what he could do. And then, yeah, and then worked out our own strategy from there. So what sort of wattage would Joe have been holding then, roughly? Because I know there's been a lot of discussion on that. Or is that, some, or is that something you can't talk about? 
No, I think um, I think I've said it on a. I, didn't, I think I've said it on the podcast. And I can't remember what it was anymore. Um, it was three hundred. Was it two? Isn't it somewhere between two ninety and three hundred watts? Might have been over three hundred watts. Mm-hmm. Um, and how much variance was there in there? Then did he? Did he? Did he do? I, I didn't watch all of it, so I can't recall. Did he do any work at the front, or did he just stay no, right no, in the pack no. all the way through? No, he stayed in the back. Um, we 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 experiment. So again. The, it, it was the whole, the whole, you know, the, the big question at the very, very start was, is the limit, is the limiting factor in this Joe or like originally it was going to be Alistair or is the limiting factor how fast the team can go? That was the, that was the big thing because that, that depends. So are we using a strategy of how fast can we make, can, we, can the eight guys in front of him go? Mm-hmm. Or are we using a strategy that preserves Joe and we go as fast as possible while preserving Joe. So, you know, in which, yeah, and, and various different ways of doing that. You know, we could have had someone on a road bike in front of him. We could have had someone sat behind him because that did save a couple of watts. But the long and short of it was that we worked out that Joe, Joe was up for taking the risk of the limiting factor being the team and not himself. He was going to sit there and absorb it and just run however he ran. So that was the thing. Joe did actually do more power than he's ever done in an Ironman bike leg before, mm. which is pretty obscene considering how over and under it was and then the run he did in on a very hot day after like you could, Joe's performance was honestly outstanding so yeah so we had to work out what what the what the case with that was going to be and then once we'd figured that out it was a case of Joe said I can deal with it the only thing we did do was we uh, rather than they took guys out if you take guys out to rest obviously that athlete is getting a rest but then they've also got to get back up to 55k an hour which is a lot of energy being used. And that energy being used isn't making the team go faster. It's not offering Joe more draft. It's just wasted energy. Mm. So rather than ever, rather than also as much as possible to avoid having people take laps out, we decided it's better for that energy to be used as just when you need the arrest, go and sit in front of Joe and just be a bit of a sweeper for him. Right. So I've got a question there. So if that power that he's put out is, is higher than he's ever put out in an Ironman before, does that suggest that Joe could go faster in Ironman races or is there some other influencing factor there in a, in an individual race that then um, affects what happens in the run? Um, I, I, I think that was just a psychological, like I, th- I think it was high, I think it was a high risk, a high risk strategy that you wouldn't normally choose to take. Um, obviously the, the, you get an increased value from taking that risk because you're being towed along by other people. And obviously, if he goes pop, then we'd await for him. Whereas if you take that risk and go pop by yourself, then it's a bit different. So, but I, th- I think it was psychologically having the weight of that event, knowing he had to catch Blumenfeld, knowing he needed to gap on Blumenfeld, just meant they just pushed it more than he could. How he held on, I think the bigger question you know, is how did he hold on for the run as well as he did? Mm. With, you know, in what was a, it was a super hot day honestly like me and my partner have still got tan lines from the run just you know from when we were literally watching it after and running around and helping out right i think my girlfriend still got sandal tan lines and stuff it was a proper hot day which is not good performance you know that is the last thing you want for an iron man bike is uh, iron man run is for to be as hot as it was mm. so the fact that he ran the time he did off the fastest bike is that that was honestly? I don't think people realise how incredible what Joe did that day was. Mm. Um, 
you know, two minutes beyond Christian was insane. Um, I, th- I, th- I think, yeah, I, I mean, I, I know you got a lot of credit for it, but again, I, I don't think people still realise that it was such a phenomenal performance by him. You'd, you'd think that that bike performance and then the ability to run off it, at least even if he's not going to try such a high-risk strategy when he goes to Kona, um, would give him a great deal of confidence that he can to put a run together like that in hot conditions. Oh, hope, yeah, hopefully. I mean, although he put on Instagram the other day that he might not go. because uh, I've, I've, uh, No, no, I've, I've heard some other stuff about that. Um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you after the show. Um, let me ask you about Nicola Sprig then, because there was a lot of discussion about her riding a road bike. So, d- did you have any? Uh, did you hear any of the chat about that? Because I guess you weren't involved with that group on theirs. They had their own. Um, they had their own strategies, did they? Yeah, um, it's, it's a difficult one. So Brett Sutton has obviously been quite critical before of female cyclists riding time trial bikes. Mm. Like he's, I think, quite. Pub- I believe quite publicly, he's slagged off their bike handling ability and suggested that they almost shouldn't be on time trial bikes because they're not good enough to ride time trial bikes. Mm-hmm. It's obviously like abysmal. Um, but that's what he suggested. Now, obviously, if Nicola, obviously, so, Nick, so there, there is a caveat beyond all this that obviously Nicola had that bad injury at the start of the year and had had back problems, so hadn't had the opportunity to really dial herself in on the time trial bike. Mm-hmm. Um so you know, that is something that needs consideration. Whether she's got a coach that would have really understood the benefits of dialing her in the time trial position and really getting her nailed in it, like, is another question because I don't know where I've I've seen articles he's written on aerodynamics before, and yeah, he should probably he should probably be at a point now where he would where he admits that's probably not his forte. Like I <laughs> say, I do try coaching now, and I don't try and help people swim techniques. I know that's not my thing, so. I, you'd think he would maybe realise that Edanix isn't his thing, but yeah, um, if you know, if 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 she could have been fully optimised, then yeah, you'd, you'd, th- you'd have thought you'd have thought she could have taken a great advantage on the bike um, if she'd have found a way of doing that by either saving energy or not. But obviously, part of it is also you know, that in that position when you're the person at the back, again, it's about saving energy. So that can come in two ways. It can come in either you are less aero, so you are more aero, so there's less wind you're taking on. Or if you're more closer on the wheel in front of you, mm. then you're also going to save the energy that way. Um, it, she believed, or Brett believed, that she'd be more comfortable on the road bike and could ride the wheel in front closer and be as efficient in, on that bike. And if that was the case, then that's kind of fair enough. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that as such. Like, you know, like it, it wouldn't be... Like I know, I can I can tell you now on my road bike, I can draft a real a wheel real well. You know, I can mm. I could sit there for, I'd be you know, centimeter. I could sit behind there for hundred miles, centimeters behind the wheel in front. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the coverage, you know, even Joe and you know, like the, none of the men were within centimeters of the wheel ahead of them. So you can be, you can be more aerodynamic, but if you're a meter off the wheel in front, then it's not particularly worth doing. If that makes sense, obviously, perfect world. Yeah do what Dan would have done and Dan would have been centimetres behind while I was a really aero. But, you know, so there are, there are numerous factors. There are things taken into account. She had had the injury. She did reckon the position was there. You know, could I, you know, could I have gone through and looked at her bike and found improvements? Yes, quite easily. Like, would that have been enough to have saved her on the day? Like, not like not necessarily, like, capped it amazingly. Mm. Um, and, you know, but yeah, there, there, there was definitely parts of her bike that were, not optimised as well as they could have been. Whether that would have been enough to make a difference to her winning the overall event, again, we like we don't know like at all. Like, pro, like, but yeah, there, there there was definitely some room that she could have found being more optimised. But as I say, 
there's caveats. Have you, the, the performance of your team then, the Joe Skipper team, if you've like all coaches reflected on that, what would, what would you do differently next time? In, in a nutshell. Yeah, I, 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 like we still made a bit of a list. We still tried to work out whether we could go um, sub 315 or not. There, 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 there's, a, there's a few little bits and bobs. I'm actually not going to give too much away because no. um, we're hoping that we might get to do this again. That was the excitement after. Um, there's a few little tips and tricks of our sleeves. Um, again, this is again I've, I've given lots of credit, uh, but Dan, this is this is where you know, where Dan's drive comes in, it, and he and he's been you know helpful to teach me as a you know as a, as a friend as, as well as someone I coach that there's always room for improvement, and mm. I guarantee that if we were to do this in a year's time again, we would find something that does not exist right now. I don't know what that'll be, but I just know through working with Dan since 2016 or whatever, that by hook or by crook, we'll find a way to go fast. The team would find a way to go faster because that's what we do. That's what Dan has always done. He's found a way. Like that. that's what, it, it's just as simple as that. Like when he first came onto the scene with GB, so GB thought, oh, well, he's just some guy that's got aero once. That's it. People will catch on with his aero and then it'll be nothing. But he's kept getting more and more aero, continuous improvement, um, and yeah, and, and he's taught me that yeah, you can you can and should drive and strive for that. So yeah, I can only imagine that in a year's time that there'll be other things and other technology that we can take advantage of that we can use to go faster. A um, couple more things before we finish, then uh, Jacob, I'm, I'm very appreciative of the time you've spent with us so far. Um, tell us a little bit about the work you do for Hoob. Um. So yeah, originally I was brought in as just kind of head of cycling was the, uh, the official job title at the time that I think at the time that I was brought in as head of cycling, we had a jersey short arm was leg warmers, so it wasn't really head of a lot. Um, but yeah, so it's just been a case of trying to help develop that range within um, within what who we've got and just bringing a cycling element into that. Like I think I mentioned at the start, um, understanding you know what club riders want, understanding what performance athletes want. You know, not just one or the other, you know, and, you know, being aware of what people consider cycling fashion, if that makes sense. And just so having someone in the company that was, and there is a bit more to the ground than just the overall cycling culture and to kind of help in that direction in a bit of a applied R&D perspective. So with that, again, that did until recently, because obviously he's not allowed now involve working with Dan from a kind of communicating the R&D from wind tunnel and fabric tunnel into real world where is that fabric where do we find it what are the moqs and kind of helping communicate those two lines across okay um, that's that that job's now done by Watchshop, and um, which is dan's company but not dan so yeah it's like still the same thing where it's helping with the the, the development side of things and apply again that applied science like it's it's a, it's a combination of applied sports science applied engineering applied textiles <laughs> definitely not something that my uh year nine textiles teacher would have thought i would go into <laughs> but um yeah that's what it is you know like just yeah, i mean there's, there's again a lot of it's problem solving and a lot of interesting ways of doing it you know you take a tri suit well it's it's a big problem solving thing you know you want it to be compressive and tight for the swim you want it to be hydrophobic but then on the bike you want it to be on the run you want it to be cooling you want aero fabric on the arms but you don't want aero fabric that would drag too much in the swim if it's a non-wetsuit swim you want the fabric to be you know like tight, like again tighter than isn't necessarily breathable you want it to be fabrics that are printable so we can make it look good because that's what athletes still want 
meant to have um, cooling treatments on it. So we have uh, specific fabrics that we can treat that help distribute heat away. Um, you want a good chamois in it. We want that chamois to be small and light and suit various different sizes of people who sit on various different saddles. It's, there's, so there's a lot going on into it. You've, you forgot an important one there for long distance athlete, Jacob. If you have to go to the bathroom, you need to get that zip undone quickly as well. And I, 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 again, I, it, it depends what 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 different athletes want and like to do. Like I've not raced a full distance yet to encounter that. I, I've had to hold it in for my halves. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I imagine that may change as I get older. Uh, but yeah, like as you say, there's this problem. You know, there's, there's all these different things that come into it and you have to try and work out, you know, which ones of these can you really measure control and validate an improvement in and which ones are, you know, maybe a bit more pseudoscience and you have to try to not worry about too much, but you still know people would like them. So you try and factor that in because yeah, you know, people are still going to say, oh, it's not got that. And that's what should, you know, and trying to manage all that and then market it and make sure that you're talking, you're explaining to people why things work. It's like a really good one that we've got. Um, and it's been really, really popular, which I'm glad about, was the uh, the, the Anamoy Triosuit, our top Triosuit, has two speeds. So um, we have essentially a high-speed and low-speed version, and that's because ultimately the aerodynamics reacts differently at different speeds for people. Mm-hmm. So a fabric that, you know, so when we go to the wind tunnel and we look at drag crisis and we look at these different, um, how the fabrics test at different speeds and all these different things, a fabric that's the fastest at 55k an hour is not the same as the fastest as a 30k an hour. Um, if anything, our first ever aero stuff was probably over-engineered a little bit because it was tested at these super high speeds because super high speeds are great because they then your measurements become more consistent because there's more energy in the kind of I want to say airflow don't tell me if that's wrong it probably is but there's more like energy in there to kind of keep a consistent measurement so you test it at faster speeds you actually get better science from it almost more a more valid measure mm. but that's not what's happening in the real world so you know you then but I mean, I know, we've been lucky with that, that we've now got the Silverstone uh, fabric tunnel that allows a bit more sophisticated to give us um, some higher quality data there. But that's that's worked really well. And again, it's a really nice applied application of science and aerodynamics and bringing it to the, to the normal person. So they've got a choice, a choice that works well for them. Um, and, you know, if, if anything, it's probably one of the biggest savings that most your average age group traffic was one of the best pounds per what saving that your average age group athlete can have. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that common misconception when athletes think that they're too slow for aerodynamics. And it's like, no, that's not the case at all. In theory, from a total time perspective, because you're out on the course for longer, aerodynamics actually makes a bigger total time mm. for you than it does for me. Does mm-hmm. that make sense as well? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think that's been a good one to try and get across and, and, and has worked really well. So as we close, uh, we, I always like to try and provide our um, listeners with some things to be thinking about, some action points. We've covered quite a lot. I think if they went back with a pen and paper, they'd be able to pick them out themselves. But let's let's see if we can summarise um, on maybe three or four things that athletes can and triathletes can put into practice this winter. You're a bike specialist, um, Jacob. So let's think about how they can go about planning their bike training this winter to give them better bike performances and better triathlon performances in 2023. Just three or four headline actions. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think because I'm trying to work out how many tangents we went on and which ones I actually managed to finish off before I went off on a different tangent. I'm thinking half of them probably never got finished off. Um, so, yeah, like, like we talked about modelling at the start. There, there, there is a benefit. I think it's it's an interesting thing that's worth people ex- experimenting with, playing with, having an idea of um, 
it can potentially help you pace events a little bit better, especially more. My wind socks are a really good one based on wind conditions because when it comes to a race, um, it's about going fast, not about going powerfully. And the best way to do that is ultimately normally modulating your watts based on harder parts of the course, windier parts of the course, trying to take more time out of people there and then relaxing other parts. That may lead to a total overall lower wattage, but it may lead to an overall faster time. And that's what it's about. And the little expression is um, power is vanity, speed is sanity. Like the amount of times I see some of these top pro Ironman athletes pumping out 320, 330 watts. And I just think, what are you doing? Like, where's all that energy going? Like, I, like again, I, I know I've not actually, in a couple of events I've done, I've not actually been quickest on the bike yet because I've been a bit concerned about the fact that I'm not a half marathon specialist at the end. I'm only doing 250 watts in some of these events. I, I know that I would be, there's not many pros out there that would be putting a lot more time into me if I was doing 270, like, and actually, like, a bit more maximised than where I should be. So when they're doing 330, I think, what are you doing? <laughs> So it's more um, what you. So what you're saying is more useful, more smarter use of your power. At, at, so that comes down to knowing the course as well, then, doesn't it? Knowing the course, utilizing the course, and again, just, air, just aero being super important. And I think the one thing the models can do, and it will just they can sh- like once you once you get your head around them and show that, and you can prove to yourself that they work there or thereabouts. One little thing that above all this that you can play with, and a lot of athletes will find this interesting. Is on it. You can, like I say, you can you can nudge your arrow down a little bit and see right how much faster would I roughly go if I got more arrow. And you'll see that you know you could knock some pretty substantial time off. Mm. What you can then do is you can knock your weight down and see how much time if you lose weight. And you'll see that it doesn't save you a, a lot at all. And that's a really good one for a lot of people to realise that weight isn't everything. Now it depends who, who it depends who we're talking to here. If you're over 20% body fat, then we probably need to start addressing that a bit. But anyone that's down at kind of 13 or below percent body fat, you know, like, so I am probably about 10, 11. Like at that point there, if I was to save a kilo, it would, if I was to lose a kilo, which is not easy going, I would save like seconds over a half Ironman. Mm. It's almost nothing. On the bike, on the run, it's a bit more. Got a question for you then. Um, I would think that a lot of people are, planning now that the way to get faster over the winter is, um, you know, maybe one way is like you just mentioned, they're losing weight is to boost their FTP. Now is FTP in the same way that you were saying that VO2 max perhaps isn't that significant to figure is FP, FTP the be all and end all, um, particularly on longer distance races, or is it more important to be able to ride at a, a, a lower um a sort of more aerobic threshold pace for a more sustainable period. Um, right. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not even able to finish my three tips because I'm going to go off on a massive tangent. Okay. Go finish um, your three tips first and then we'll come back to FTP in a minute. Oh uh, yeah. Cause I was, I was like, this is a big tangent otherwise. Um, yes. Yeah, so well, well, we could come back to FTP on another, on another podcast yeah. if you like. So there's, yeah. So there's being aware you're modeling, being aware of how important aero is, being aware that you're trying to go fast, not just powerfully. Um, ultimately being, um, I was going to say now I've completely lost that one. Um, be, like, can, like, I think the next two points is just around consistency. That you know, what the consistency is key, and that when you're training hard, when you steady stuff steady, it's steady. When your hard stuff's hard, it's hard. But it's not so hard that you're falling off the turbo after an effort. If you're falling off the turbo after an effort, and that's probably why you, you're either if you're doing that regularly, you're either not going to be adapting enough from your training, 
um, or if you are adapted, you know, you know, or you're going to get to points in the week or further down the line that you're feeling unmotivated. Like saying, especially coming into the winter now, it's really common to see people smashing September, October, November, mm. and then suddenly all the motivation has fallen off come May, June, July, August, etc. And the amount, yeah, it's, it's super, and that, and that's when the the racing is for a lot of people. So you know, at times, you know, you almost want it's a long winter now. It's almost good to deliberately knock it back at times. It's good to give yourself additional rest. And remember, this is a long winter for a lot of people. If you're racing in the UK, if you're racing abroad, you might have soon races sooner. You're not going to have nice races in the UK till maybe April now. That's a long time to go. So when you're doing this, you know you're trying. You know, every session is you've got to think: Can I train? Will I be able to train the next day? Will I be able mm-hmm. to train next week? Will I be able to do weeks of this, months of this? Like, you know, if you're doing sessions that you could squeeze two more out of and then you're done for the rest of the year, then you're training too hard. Well, um, you, you know, you talk about that. Um, I know Johnny Brownlee talked about this. He's, we've got this program here. We know we're doing this on Monday. We do this on Tuesday. And they've been doing that since they were 14. It's a pretty, it's a pretty standard schedule they've got. And when they were looking at 2012 Olympics, here's the schedule. How can we make sure that we hit every one of those sessions right through to August 2012? Yeah. What do we have to do today to make sure we get tomorrow done? What do we have to do this week to make sure we get next week done? And sometimes that is making sure that you go a bit easier. It's definitely not making sure you go harder. But yeah, very rare. Like again, this isn't this isn't saying go soft. This isn't saying you're not trying. It's not saying you're taking it easy and just having a disc going on the turbo. You know, you still it's not you're still breaking the sweat. But yeah, as I say, it's big picture. This is a piece of a puzzle that's you know going to last for six months. It's you know it's it, you know like it's again if if you're doing an ultra you wouldn't try and start smashing mile six like you know it's it's the same thing you don't start smashing week six of your winter training think of the big picture. So I've got I've got quite a few then, but we've I think we've got enough there. We've got modelling, know the course, be more aero, which is all about um, practicing that position and getting a bit more done on your mobility, consistency, which I'm going to put at the top because I think we agree with all the other experts out there that that's probably the most significant factor and i like the thing make sure your easy's easy and your hard's hard but not too hard yeah <laughs> but um yeah and I'll, I'll quickly try and do ftp but yeah so ftp okay. like like again the, the calculation of knockoff five percent is is pretty inaccurate for most people yes, there's, loads, there's loads of studies on this for rowers swimmers runners blah 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 five percent isn't accurate because if you have a large anaerobic like component of that 20 minutes then it definitely doesn't equate down for someone like myself it's probably a, a true like aerobic threshold of probably closer on 11 12 percent of what i could do for 20 minutes mm-hmm. um which is like which took a long time to get made around because it explained why i couldn't get nowhere near what i thought it was for a long time um so yeah um the calculations are questionable but like let, but so let, let's say you let's say you'd work in FTP as a pure you you want to do a pure one hour. I don't know what you'd want to, mm-hmm. but, but let's but let's say that's what you want to that's do. Stephen Stephen Silas says one hour as well. And when you tell people no, don't bother with the ramp test at trainer. I'd say don't bother with the twenty minutes and then adjust it by seven percent. Just go hard for one hour. No, oh, I can't do that. Well, it's supposed to be a one hour test. Yeah, I I, 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 if I wouldn't do one hour. To be fair. No, I wouldn't either. Um, I wouldn't. I don't like doing yeah, tests like that. To be honest, I think like when I've looked at Silas. So I've plotted Silas' numbers when he's posted about his, he's posted his 20 and he's posted his hour and stuff before. And I've worked it out and I've gone, there's no like he's not his hours are not as maximal as they could be, I don't think. I don't think he's no. emptying himself for that hour because if you kind of calculate again, like his critical power AWC, I know that model's not perfect, especially all the way up to an hour, but I think that he's still undercooking it slightly because mm. it, it takes a lot to 
destroy yourself for a full hour and yeah exactly. he's, doing it, he's doing it you know for the sake of science not for the world championships i think it becomes a bit different but anyway so depending on how you calculate let's say you've got this aerobic power is it important so again like like you, you can definitely train just to improve your 20 minute power you can you know if you, like, if you let's get like you know if, if that's the test you decide you want to do because you've always done that and okay you might start knocking 10 percent off instead but you're going to use 20 minutes as your baseline if you do a boatload of 20 minute efforts all the time yes you'll probably improve your 20 minute power does that then correlate with overall cycling performance like probably not if you do it in that way you can kind of you can train for the test you know you can mm. cheat you know like, which, which then isn't what you're trying to do um as, as a rough guideline you know like if you are you know if you are working you know your aerobic systems then yes you should expect to see an improvement in 20 minute in ftp um in that kind of aerobic hour power um it's, it's not the most important it's like it, 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 I'd, I'd imagine it correlates probably quite well with what you can do on the bike, but it's still not the most important. Like a, a massive part of it is, you know, building that fatigue ability, that robustness that you can do two hours and or four hours or five hours, six hours and run off the back of it. If all your training is done around maximizing that 20 minute test, mm. then, and you do no long rides that say you just, you know, you could spend all winter smashing 20 minutes, 20 minutes, 20 minutes, your 20 minute test will go up. Your, your FTP will go up or whatever. That doesn't mean you'll be any better in an Ironman bike leg because you won't be any good at using fat as a fuel. You won't have any efficiency. You'll have no robustness to run off the bike. Mm. It, it won't, it won't work. Now, if you do five hour rides and some or long rides and some long efforts and good consistent training, your 20 minute may go up or your FTP may go up, but you're also improving all these other things as well. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's what you should be trying to do. So like you, like you'd like that, you you know, it's good to have a baseline, a, a baseline measure to see is training roughly working, performance roughly improving. And the 20 minute test is a lot better than doing a five hour ride test or a one hour all out test. Um, but it's not a simple case of just training. If you just train for the test, then that won't equate to how your Ironman bike leg looks, if that makes okay. sense. Yeah, it does. Does to me, um, but I've got a little. I've got a little bit more understanding than maybe some of our listeners. But it's been great, Jacob. I've really appreciated it. It's given us a great insight into training people, into the uh, sort of how um, for, for cycling and for triathlon, uh, particularly how you apply scientific principles to this, and then and then how you bring it back down to sort of principles that people can understand because that's what we really want isn't it as coaches is we've got we've got to be able to translate the science into something that they can understand and put into practice on a daily basis and the bottom line for me is uh, as we talked about when you whatever method of science you choose unless you're consistent with applying it you probably aren't going to get the results you deserve so for anybody out there listening if you want a start point for your winter training just work out how you can be consistent. And as Jacob said, where the, how, how you can be consistent with your training, with your sleep, with your nutrition. Because if you can just nail those three things, I think you're going to do a pretty good job. Yeah. Yeah. Like, again, I can go off on, I can go off on new tangents now on nutrition. and But yeah, all of, all of it is consistency, getting into a good routine. And I say, you have to work hard to make consistency a priority and to make it work. It doesn't come easy. Like it's not as easy as people think it is or as Alan Cousins thinks it is on Twitter or whatever. <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult thing to get right, but that should be your primary focus. And yeah, when, once you've got that right and you can start training super consistently, then you can start playing with the extra nuances and the, the more kind of sexy parts of training, if that makes sense. Perfect sense to me. Jacob, really, really appreciate your time today. Thanks very much for your insight. 
hopefully we'll catch up with you again soon. Maybe we can talk about FTP in more detail. Yeah, thanks for having me. And sorry for uh, going off on tangents, maybe a bit too far down the rabbit hole. But... Oh, no, no. that's We love rabbit holes. We love disappearing down rabbit holes. Take care. See you soon. Yeah. Bye. Great stuff there. And Jacob definitely didn't need to apologise for diving into those rabbit holes. It was a lot of fun. So thank you again to Jacob for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human podcast. As usual, you'll find links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. To make sure you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button. Ooh, and don't forget to look for that link in the show notes so you can download your free mobility program if you haven't got it already. That's all for now. Have a great week and I definitely will see you on the next episode.